Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Hey, and thanks for listening to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr., and I'm pleased to be joined by Professor and Pastor Dr. Eric Smith. So, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, Eric, um, I'll introduce you as not really my seminary professor, but you've become like my de facto seminary professor. So, hopefully, you don't mind that. Eric is one who I just kind of pester an email whenever I have a theological or church history question or want to talk out some uh, music of mine. So he's been gracious enough to, to humor me there. And he's the professor. Uh, yeah, you, maybe you should tell me, tell us more about that. But you're professor at Iliff School of Theology and a pastor at First Plymouth. It's a congregational church, UCC church in South Denver. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm a professor at the Isle of School of Theology, which is in Denver. And uh, that's a school that's um, traditionally been affiliated with the United Methodist Church, although things with the United Methodist Church these days are interesting. And uh, Isleth has always been a very ecumenical kind of place, which is something I enjoy about it. Um, I teach New Testament and early Christianity there, and I direct the Doctor of Ministry program, which is brand new, Doctor of Ministry in Prophetic Leadership, um, which we launched about uh, a year ago. And uh, in addition to that, I work at First Plymouth Congregational Church, where I've been for uh, a dozen years, and mostly my job there is worship and um, the youth program, which is uh, you know, an interesting set of uh, responsibilities in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. So we've had to be very creative and, um, and, and the same is true at Isleth. It's a really interesting time, I think for all kinds of people and all kinds of line, lines of work, but it certainly has been for me. Yeah. Now tell us, tell us about kind of your, if what you're willing to share about your, your journey of being a Christian in the past. And if something's different now, what that looks like now, how that's changed. Sure. Um, you know, I sometimes in talking to my friends, I, I hear that a lot of people who ended up in um, the kind of work I do, there were signs early on. And I think that was true for me. I remember one Sunday morning, um, we, we lived across the street from a big Southern Baptist church in my little small town in North Carolina. And I um, didn't really go there, you know, regularly. I went to their mission friends, which is like their... Um, teenager kind of stuff, but I didn't go there for worship. But one Sunday morning, I got up and got myself completely dressed in like every nice piece of clothing I could find and, um, and just told my mom I wanted to go. And she was like, why? You know, I mean, she's also a religious person, but she did not expect that out of an 11 year old or whatever. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And so my earliest uh, brushes with religion were kind of like that, just me kind of opting into things. Um, when I was in gosh, probably third or fourth grade, I met a kid who became my best friend whose father was a Disciples of Christ pastor. Okay. So through, through that, I started going to that church. My whole family started going to that church. 
And I got involved with the Disciples of Christ, which is our denomination um, then. But um, I also, through that church, got involved in uh, summer camp, which was happening nearby. And I ended up going to this camp for uh, about four years and then was on the staff there for about seven years. And that camp was run by the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. So Hey, yeah. Yeah. so I ended up working for Billy Graham for seven years wow. and that, uh, that was a great time. Actually. I really, really value the time I spent with, with that camp and with that organization. Um, I was never a very great fit for, for the Billy Graham world, but, uh, I fit in well enough, I guess. I remember having arguments with some of those folks and I talk about that some in the book, um, you know, arguments I would have with people about Christianity and Christian doctrine. So I did that um, through college, actually. But during college, I went to a Southern Baptist college mm-hmm. and um, minored in, in religion and found myself, as a lot of college people do, kind of thinking through things, questioning things, unsure of my own um, stance on a lot of things. And that time was a really useful time for me to kind of give some distance between me and the evangelical world. And so following that, then I graduated. Uh, we had just gotten married. My wife and I had just gotten married and we weren't sure what was going to come next. Um, so I had heard that you're supposed to do a master's degree and who knows if that's true, but that's, that's what I had heard at the time. And I decided to go do that. And, um, I didn't really have a clear sense of what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I said, well, I have all these religious questions. Let's go do a religion degree. Mm-hmm. So I went to Vanderbilt divinity school, um, okay. mostly cause I was flattered. They let me in. <laughs> and I uh, did a master of theological studies there. And from there, that was kind of where um, a lot of my theology got solidified. Mm-hmm. Um, people talk about seminary as a kind of um, destabilizing or corrosive right. time for right. faith, but it wasn't, wasn't like that at all for me. It was a time where I was able to put a lot of things together. Okay. And so following that, I was sort of who I am now, more or less, I think, um, and had you know, come a long way from the evangelical world. I still value it. I still have a lot of friends from that time. It's just not my theology anymore. Yeah. And I find myself kind of in the left wing of the Protestant mainline these days. Well, one of my previous episodes, I was talking to Katie Hayes, if you know her, she's a pastor in the Disciples of Christ in Texas. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things we talked about was kind of this ability to reconcile and, and have value from our past, even if it was conservative. So it's great to hear that and that's a fun piece on the resume though working for the billy graham association i still claim them i don't know if they claim me <laughs> it's like i still claim to be a, a alumni of baptist bible college in springfield missouri and i definitely don't think they'd want to claim me but <laughs> yeah um share if you would some spiritual practices you might have developed or something you'd recommend to others i don't know that i'm the best um person for this. So I heard an interview with John Dominic Crossan, who's a sort of famous Bible scholar. Um, and someone asked him about his prayer life one time. And I loved his answer, which is, look, I'm a Bible scholar. I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about the Bible. I go to bed at night, I'm thinking about the Bible. I spend my whole day writing and talking about the Bible and religion and Christianity. And so I don't know, he said, how to differentiate that from prayer. Mm-hmm. That's just what I live and breathe all day long. And I uh, really enjoyed that way of thinking about it. And that's how I've come to think about myself Yeah, um, is that I, I just spend so much time thinking about this stuff 
um, I don't do very much that would be recognizable to a lot of folks as a spiritual practice, but I feel like I'm immersed in it all the time. The one thing I do, I think you know this about me, is I uh, go running every single day. Yeah. Um, this is something I started almost four years ago, so it'll be four years pretty soon, that I've gone running every single day, no matter where I am, no matter what's going on in my life. Um, I go out and I go for a run. And that has become a very centering kind of thing um, that helps me focus on my day, helps me think through things. Often that's where I kind of pre-write sermons or papers that I, I need to do. I think through problems, conflicts in my life. I think about all that while I'm running. And it's a, you know, usually only 25, 30 minutes a day, but it's a very meditative centering time for me. Yeah, I'm kind of bitter at you about that running thing. So we won't talk about that anymore. Uh, I have a back injury, so I can't really run at all. So, um, yeah. Well, and I've realized, um, you know, when I started it, I thought I felt very kind of, um, I don't know, proud about it or even heroic somehow about it. And the more I've done it, the more I've realized I'm only able to do that because of any number of privileges, right, that are lined up in my favor. And especially with the recent killing of Ahmad Arbery, yeah. um, I've realized, you know, I am a largish white man in the suburbs who can just go outside and not really have to think very much about whether someone's going to hurt me or kill me or, you know, mess with me in any kind of way. So um, there's all sorts of people for whom that's a far more difficult thing. There's people who, for reasons of ability, uh, a disability can't, can't go running. There's people whose life circumstances don't allow it. Um, so I've, I've come to think of it as kind of a marker of my privilege, even it as, is, as does function as like this spiritual practice. Yeah. That's the hard balance, isn't it? Um, yeah. you know, you, and you didn't mention runner's world. Um, they did a story, I think a few months back about females and kind of this females experiences of being running and feeling threatened or feeling catcalled. So that's just mm -hmm. another example of those little ways we don't think about privilege that are immensely privileged that's right yeah i have friends for whom that has become a problem who who were chased who were followed wow. even assaulted while running wow. and that's just never happened to me yeah and that's that's a difference in my experience and everyone else's experience that has to be acknowledged i think yeah i think the worst i ever had was like you know forrest gump you know run forrest i mean that's just yeah different world um well cool um that, that reminds me of th something I think that I always struggled with when I was Baptist, when I was conservative, was this idea that there was supposed to be this differentiation, differentiation between like studying to study the Bible and then your personal devotions. And I just, I couldn't ever like separate the two. Like it just didn't make sense to me to have this like, oh, I'm studying now for my sermon, but now I'm studying for devotion. Like it just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. That's a speech I have to give um, a lot of my students, like in the intro to New Testament class, I have to kind of say, look, yes, you might know the Bible really, really well in this way. It, there's a different way of knowing. But I think if you do it right, actually, those different ways of knowing converge again at some point and they become um, complementary to each other. That's great. That's great. Well, let's talk about your book. Uh, I have it here, Paul the Progressive. And just the title alone is... I think it's probably meant to grab your attention, right? Or it's a question. A little bit. Paul the Progressive. So I like that. Um, tell me, tell our listeners what moved you to write this book. Why write, why write this book? 
I think, by the way, that's the only question mark in the whole catalog of Chalice Press, is what I was told uh, in the title. So uh, what moved me to write the book is just the experience of being a professor and being a local church pastor for my whole, um, my whole adult life and having this experience of people come to me in both of those settings, in intro classes and you know, on Sunday mornings or in a, a class or something, people come to me and say, you know, I just hate Paul. Yeah. Um, whenever we would get to Paul in a Bible study, they would say, I just hate this guy. And I was having that experience again and again and again, like constantly in the progressive circles I run in. And then I was also having the experience of doing a PhD and becoming a professor when uh, at this moment when there's so much scholarship on Paul that's really reframing how we think about him and really trying to re-describe Paul in a way that frees him from the bonds of what I would say is mostly Protestant Christian theology that has really determined how he's been interpreted. So I wanted to, I wanted to do something with that scholarship and, and speak those things to these people that I know weren't hearing them that, you know, at the society of biblical literature, people are very well versed on all this new perspective on Paul stuff or the, the Paul within Judaism stuff, but in the pews, no one has heard of this stuff. So I wanted to kind of bridge that gap for the people that I knew needed to hear it. That's I'll say as a seminary educated pastor, that's like the hardest thing is to figure out a way to take that learning from seminary and translate it to, and make it accessible so folks in the pews can understand it. And I think that's one of the things that I, I liked most about your book is that it's very, I think, very accessible. Um, so you, you alluded to this, and I think this is in your introduction, perhaps, about how to stop hating Paul. So tell us, how do we stop hating Paul? Because, uh, you know, if if you went to a, a you know, liberal-leaning seminary like my school, Philip Seminary, or your school, Isle of School Theology, whether intentional or not, I'm guessing most students, and you seem to say that in your in your book, like come away with kind of this like jaded view of Paul. Uh, so tell us more about that, how we can stop hating Paul. Well, so to start, I'll say Paul deserves some of this, I think, okay. um, but he also gets a bad rap. He is not quite who we think he is. So one of the reasons people hate Paul, that's actually a lot of reasons people hate Paul, they are because he is homophobic, because he's uh, misogynist, because he is anti-Semitic. There's all these reasons. There's a whole list of reasons. And it turns out most of those reasons are not very well founded in Paul's own words and actions. They're mostly because of the layers of interpretation that have been put on top of Paul over the years, mm -hmm. the kind of accretions of Christian theology. Yeah that um, have built up around this guy. So when you hate Paul, chances are you don't hate Paul. You hate the, the tradition that has kind of used Paul in certain kinds of ways. You hate people like Martin Luther, even if you don't hate Martin Luther, you might hate the way Luther read Paul. Yep. And so um, I, I think Paul just isn't fully understood. And it, it, partly that's because we have this lens of, Protestant Christianity that has made it difficult for us to understand him. So you have to somehow take those lenses off and put on new ones to stop hating him so much. Yeah, no, as part of that, as part of that lens and tradition, would you include in that like pseudo Paul, pseudepigraphal Paul? Yeah. Uh, for our listeners, explain real quick if the, for those unfamiliar with that term, what that means. Yeah, so Paul wrote, uh, as far as scholars can agree, seven, he probably wrote a lot of letters, but we have seven of his letters in the New Testament. 
And there are other letters by Paul in the New Testament that Paul did not write. Scholars largely agree or yeah. sometimes are, are in, um, have differences of opinion about. But these probably, so these are books like First and Second Timothy, Titus, Colossians, Ephesians, Second Thessalonians. These are books that probably someone came along in the wake of Paul and uh, wrote these in his persona, wrote these in his name using his name, kind of mimicking his style as a homage, as a way to kind of, um, I don't know, give respect to Paul. To, and to us, that feels a little shady. It feels right. like that's well, not what you should reasons. do. It's, it's horrible, but as I understand yep. it, in the, ancient, in the ancient world, that was fairly common practice, correct? Precisely, yeah. And it was a way of honoring one's kind of mentor or uh, intellectual hero. So people did that, and some of those books found their way into the New Testament. A lot of the things that are most problem- problematic about Paul come from those books. And the reason I think that the problematic stuff shows up there, I've forgotten the scholar's name who talks about this, but um, uh, it's not going to come to me. But there's an attempt to fix Paul uh-huh. and his legacy in a couple of different ways, both senses of the word, to fix it as in correct it, repair it. Uh-huh. Um, and especially this happens with regard to women. So Paul seemed to have been very inclusive about women very affirming of women's ministry. And someone came along and said, well, that won't work. So let's fix Paul. The other thing that was happening was they were fixing his legacy in terms of putting it in place, making sure it's stuck. Mm. And so they were reproducing Paul to make it stick at the same time. They were correcting it in a certain direction. And a lot of the stuff you read in the new Testament about gender, about sexuality, about um, kind of uh, strict roles for people who are enslaved, that, stuff comes from pseudo Paul. It doesn't come from the authentic Paul that all scholars agree Paul wrote. So that's still in your new Testament. That's something, you know, people of faith will have to decide for themselves how much weight to give it, but it's, uh, it's not Paul and it doesn't represent the earliest layers of the Christian tradition. Good, good. So you write in your book that the key to understanding Paul is like understanding his idea of the end times which I think is a fascinating proposition. Um, So I want to hear more about that. So this is a bedrock principle, I think, of Pauline scholarship, is you have to recognize that Paul thought he was living at the end of days. Paul thought that God had sent Jesus and that Jesus' faithfulness to his uh, work in dying on the cross, that that was a signal, and his resurrection, especially his resurrection, was a signal that God had inaugurated a new moment that God was inviting Gentiles into the family of God in a way that they had not been invited before. So Paul absolutely thought he was not going to die. He thought he was going to witness the end of the world or the end of some era anyway. It's, it's not entirely clear, I don't think. And he, so he had this expectation that it was all going to wrap up any minute now. And that give, gave him sort of a a frantic energy that you could really see shining through in his letters. I think he was just desperate to get his work done, but it also gave him, um, you know, a certain ethical lens. So a lot of the times when Paul says something um, that's, that's sort of um, disappointing ethically, he'll say, look, if you're unmarried, stay, uh, stay that way. If you're married, just, just stick it out. If you're a slave, stay a slave, yeah. stuff like that. He says that because he, not because he thinks being a slave is good. 
-hmm. says it because he thinks God's going to wrap this all up like next week. And we should focus on the things that matter, not on changing your station in life because your station in life is extremely temporary for Paul. Now we know here in the year 2020, as we we record this, that he was wrong about that, that the world did not in fact change substantially or wrap up or end or anything like that. We're still here. And I think if he had known that his whole career would have played out really differently. He would have said different things, but uh, he didn't have a way to know that. Yeah. And that gets into a a point you make. And I think in another chapter about contextual ethics with, I think that was Paul, the prude, uh, Paul, the prude chapter about these contextual ethics influencing this understanding of those things you spoke to. Yeah. Right. And, um, the other, you know, speaking of context, it's not just about time and whether how much time is left on the clock in the world. Mm-hmm. It's also about the context he's writing to. Yeah. So he wasn't writing to you. He wasn't writing to me. He wasn't writing to anybody when he wrote First Corinthians, except the Corinthians. Right. That's who his audience was. And we forget this, right? That when we read yeah. Paul's letters, we're reading someone else's mail that, you know, at best it's an open letter. Yeah, I think but that's the best line probably you have in the book that we're reading. I don't know if that's original with you, but we're reading. It's not. Mail. Okay. Well, it's whoever came up with it. I think it's a great line. I think I got it from Bart Ehrman, but it's a very common line around mm-hmm. around the Bible world. Yeah, it's not ours. It's, yeah. we, we might claim it, and we claim it as scripture, which I think would have confused Paul. But it's uh, it's not ours. It, we're not the audience for it, and we have to remember that when we read it. I want to go back to that point you just said. It would have confused Paul. Tell me more. Um, what the, What do you mean by that? That his writing, his writings would have been understood as scripture. Yeah. Well, you know, there's this saying: "Don't ever put anything in an email that you don't want on the front page of the paper the next day." Yeah. And that's sort of what happened to Paul. You know, he's writing these letters, sometimes about very tender and dear kind of personal conflicts. Yeah, I mean, Corinthians, um, all kinds of drama. Oh my goodness! Yeah, and you know, he's writing it. I think he probably expected some further readership for it, yeah. especially toward the end of his career when he was becoming kind of well-known. But I don't think he would have ever dreamed that he would be in a Bible, right? Mm. Because partly because he didn't think there would be a Bible because the world was yeah. you know, short, short on time. But, um, you know, he, as a, as a Jew, Paul would have grown up understanding scripture how much there was a scripture to understand at that point is a matter of some debate, but he would have understood that there were oracles and revelations from God uh, captured in written text that could then be read and understood and studied and debated. But I don't think he would have ever dreamed or, or uh, hoped in any way that he would be his, his writing would become part of that. And I think he would have just categorically understood himself in a different category he, he wasn't writing scripture he wasn't moses yeah but that's what we've done to him so i think it would confuse him i i don't mean this is a pun and everyone always thinks it's a pun it would have appalled him right <laughs> that that he would be scripture huh. um, it's kind of the the script uh spiritual equivalent of getting your emails published on the front page of the paper hmm. and he probably would have done it differently if he'd known that that was going to happen i think yeah because he he has some bold words for people sometimes yeah some bold yeah. words well, I think about uh, there's a line in First Corinthians where he's he just says in as, as an aside, like, I've forgotten who all I baptized while I was there. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a very it doesn't make him look great. Yeah. Um, so I think he would have put that differently if he knew that you and I would be talking about this 2000 years later. I, I'm reading Sendhal, uh, 
Christopher Senhal off your recommendation. And Senhal talks about Paul just being horribly, uh, I don't know if pompous is the word he uses, but um, yeah, lacking humility, I guess. Yeah, Christopher Stendhal is one of my favorites. Um, and he, in the book Final Account, which is my favorite of his books, yeah. he, um, he talks about Paul just being insufferable, which I think is right. You know, so this is a book I've written about defending Paul in certain kinds of ways. But in the conclusion of the book, I actually say, look, I don't think he was fun to be around. I think this guy was a jerk. He was the worst. And um, Stendhal says something like, he was, Paul was the greatest, but no one could stand him. And I think that's probably about where I land too. Boy, that's interesting you say that because as we're recording this, a few weeks back was the whole Michael Jordan 98 Bulls documentary, which I imagine you were somewhat familiar with being from North Carolina. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was kind of the, that's kind of the takeaway for many people from that was like Jordan, Michael Jordan, the greatest player ever, but man, he was not a fun person to be around. So it's a bigger question is, is greatness worth kind of just being a jerk to everybody? I don't know. <laughs> I'd rather not. It's hard to know. I'd rather not be great to be honest. Um, yeah. But that's me. Well, we've been kind of hinting around this and talking around it, but your framework that you're interpreting from comes from this, this perspective on Paul that is new Paul or uh, the radical new Paul. So give a brief synopsis of that if you can. Yeah. So this goes by different names, uh, the new perspective or the Paul within Judaism movement or perspective. And um, I get a lot of my lineage of this through my professor and now my colleague, Pamela Eisenbaum, who mm. has written a book that I recommend always early on for anybody interested in this stuff. Yeah. It's called Paul was not a Christian, the original message of a misunderstood apostle. Um, so I kind of come to it from that lineage, but there are lots of people working on this starting, you know, in the sixties and seventies, people like Christopher Stendhal, E.P. Sanders. Um, there are a lot of folks working on this stuff. The gist of it um, to kind of, oversimplify a really big field. The gist of it is that you have to think about Paul as a Jew, that when you think about Paul as a convert to Christianity, who um, switches from one religion to another, abandons the old, embraces the new, mm -hmm. that's, that's going to give you just the wrong impression of Paul. That's not at all what he was up to. So you have to think about Paul within Judaism as a Jew who continues to be a Jew uh, who nevertheless thinks that the Jewish God has invited Gentiles into God's family, into God's people at the end of days. So that's, you know, you get variations within that, um, but that's basically the gist, right? Uh, sort of like what's happened with historical Jesus scholarship in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, as people want to understand Jesus as a Jewish person. Yeah. Well, that has a lot of um, impact on how we think about what Jesus said and did. The same is true for Paul, when you understand his Judaism, then you understand G uh, Paul a little bit better. Well, it's great because that was the next question I was going to ask you: is how does that influence how we understand Christianity? Then, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think this is still being sorted out. Actually, um, the last chapter of my book, which uh, has been the most controversial, is where I, I make an attempt to kind of sort this out and say, well, you know, what did Paul think then about? Um, yeah how Christianity worked. If, I mean, there wasn't Christianity when Paul was around, but how did he think that this whole Jesus thing worked? So I think, um, you know, if you're thinking about how, how this changes Christianity, for me, coming from a mainline left-wing Protestant perspective, it, it really sweeps away a lot of these 
debates that have consumed mainline Protestantism for the last couple of generations around gender, for example. Okay. You know, people our parents' age yeah. didn't, didn't really have the opportunity to go into ministry in any wholesale way in mainline Protestant denominations until later in life. People our grandparents' age, it would have been kind of unthinkable when they were yeah. young people. So that's a change that's happened only recently. And Paul was at the center of that for reasons we've already kind of talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new perspective, I think, helps to kind of show that, yeah, this, that's just not as important. Uh, and not just the new perspective, but just broader scholarship on yeah. Paul and, and authorship and things like that. Uh, the same is true for human sexuality. That's a debate, really, that's still ongoing in very mm-hmm. fierce kind of ways in a lot of communities. And Paul's at the center of that one. But when you understand kind of modern Pauline scholarship, which I think the church is starting to do, it's not as big a deal. And I think the the frontier for this is Pauline soteriology. Soteriology is the yeah. uh, how does how are you saved? Yeah. Um, and I think we, I don't actually know what Paul thought, but I don't think he thought anything about the way we think about it, uh, with you know substitutionary atonement and um, this whole like debt and payment system where I'm so you know in, burdened with my own sinfulness. This all comes from Martin Luther that I can't possibly pay my debt. And so Jesus dies. I don't think that's how Paul thought about it at all. If, if it was, there's not much evidence for him thinking yeah. that way in the new Testament. So I think that's something the church is going to have to rethink. It's an ongoing thing, but we've already rethought a lot of things based on this kind of scholarship. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about this and I'm glad you bring it up. I'm going to read this line from your book. Cause I liked it. Um, I guess you're quoting Pamela Eisenbaum here. So I guess we'll give her credit. She that's writes, great. it is his answer to the question how will the world be redeemed and how do I faithfully participate in that redemption? Uh, which to me is such an incredible different way of looking at salvation as it's, and I imagine it sounds like for you, it was the same, especially being with the Billy Graham association where salvation was so personal and individual. And this framework switches our mindset almost incredibly to it's not just about me and my situation but i'm a part of this bigger thing and i'm not like i'm not just good once i've prayed the sinner's prayer like this is just a beginning and now i've got something some work to do to participate in what god is seeking doing at least that's how i understand it exactly um we think of whether you're actually evangelical protestant or not we think of christianity as a profoundly individual thing it's about your heart and where, you know, is Jesus in your heart and your decision and your actions. And um, I just don't think Paul thought that way. This is one of the fruits of kind of thinking about Paul as a Jewish person is that salvation or redemption is not all that individualistic there. It's a communal thing. It's a covenant that God has with a people, not with a person. Yeah. And so I think Paul thought something similar was happening with Gentiles, not, not Bob the Gentile, but the Gentiles, you know, that yeah. they're going to be brought in to this, this thing God is doing. So uh, I love the way Pam puts it in that, um, that quote, which is, I guess why I quoted it, that it's about how, how do I participate in the redemption of the world, which is uh, a great question, yeah. actually, as we sit here yep. in the year 2020 in the midst of a pandemic and, and uh, racial injustice and all sorts of terrible things. How do we participate in the redemption of the world? This is the question Paul is asking himself. And if you are asking yourself that question, I think Paul is your ally. Wow. That's great. That's great. Um, I also want to ask you about two, and I probably need to let you go here soon, <laughs> but this is so much fun. Um, I'm reminded of 
we actually exchanged emails about this. I was talking to you at the end of chapter eight about what is a church. And I scratched down some notes. Uh, church is where we come together in communion to encourage and enable each other to fulfill our calling while we work together to make progress for the kingdom. I don't know if you remember that email. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I think it just totally, uh, it re, I can't think of the word, but it reorients us mm-hmm. how we think about church and Christianity rather than being a self-centered, self-seeking religion to one being about caring for others and caring for the world. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- well, here I'll maybe move slightly beyond Paul and into sort of more broadly early Christianity that I don't know about your congregation, but my congregation right now, we're meeting uh, on, on uh, YouTube live mm-hmm. and we don't, we don't go in the building. Right. You know, the building's closed and everything we thought was true and right about how our church worked is suddenly yep. not all that helpful. And Paul, you know, thought of churches not as a building. They didn't have buildings, as far as we can tell. Uh, like 254, I think, is the first, in Dura, Europis, in Syria, is the first church building that we know of that was a dedicated space. Before that, churches uh, weren't buildings. They were groups. They were assemblies. The word in Greek, ekklesia, means an assembly, um, a, a collection, a gathering. Uh, literally, those who are called out to a, a place together. Yeah. And so we're doing that again here. Uh, accidentally not on purpose but we're doing it and paul i think thought of of communities of faith that way not as institutions Mm -hmm. which i I really don't think he could care any less about institutions you know Uh, there's no first first christian church of corinth today (laughs) Um, that church is long gone that institution faded long ago and that's fine What's, what's important, I think, for Paul and for the Christian tradition is that there are groups of people asking, how do we be faithful? And that is a different kind of question than how do we help our church survive? How do we get young families? How do we make the budget this year? No, those are not the questions. And they're not the questions Paul was asking either. The question is, how are we to be faithful people? And how are we to be faithful people together? That's a great question for a church to consider. I mean, especially now, yeah. but just... Even in even in our pre-COVID, so many churches struggling, trying to figure out, and that question, how do we be faithful? That's a great question. Well, I want to ask, too, before we take a break, is uh, it seems relevant as we're recording this, uh, Eric and I are recording this, the last week has, has been a tumultuous time as communities uh, have been protesting the, um, the unjust death of George Floyd. And there's been a lot of protesting and writing and, and, um, and, and our, our government, our president has been responding in ways that I, I personally find uh, antithetical to morality and justice, I'll say. Um, but there's also been, in this, in this context, there's that continued conversation about what is the role of, of Christianity to, to obey and submit to the government. And you, you address this, you talk about this in your book kind of on relation to immigration, but I think it's relevant here. So I wanted to, I wanted to have you speak to that just a little bit. Immigration and slavery as well. Um, yeah. So I start with this, uh, in this, in the chapter about slavery, I start with uh, a clipping from a newspaper in Raleigh, North Carolina in the year 1850 
that was sort of railing against people who uh, were helping people who were enslaved escape. Yeah. And this, uh, this newspaper from my home state uh, was, was just uh, really angry about this and was quoting Romans chapter 13 as evidence for its position. And this, this uh, also gets quoted elsewhere. I put yeah. on Facebook the other day, you know, we're probably like 18 hours away from some really bad takes on Romans 13 because these always seem to come out at moments when yeah. people are protesting things like the murder of, uh, of African-American people or yeah. like um, any, any kind of injustice or brutality. The, uh, the first thing that will come out is, well, Paul says in Romans 13 that we should obey the authorities. And, um, you know, that's what they quoted. That's what slave owners quoted in the 1850s. That's what colonial governments quoted in the 1890s. That's what, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, I forgot the attorney general's name from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Jeff Sessions. That's what he quoted about immigration at the border. Well, you know, if they just obeyed authority, then they wouldn't be locked up in cages. Yeah. Uh, okay. So on one hand, that's like, let's just assume that's what Paul meant. That's still a reprehensible position, yeah. but it's not what Paul meant. That's not what he was saying in Romans 13 at all. And there's all sorts of different interpretations of Romans 13 that, uh, you know, maybe buy the book if you want to hear more about it, but it's, um, it's just wrong. It's not what Paul meant at all. How could Paul have meant that? Right. Mm -hmm. If you look in second Corinthians, he, he has this long tirade about, look, I've, I've been beaten this many times. I've been chased out of this town. They had to lower me in a basket out of this other city mm -hmm. to keep me from being uh, mobbed by in, in a riot. You know, he, he's been the victim of a lot of abuse, including physical bodily abuse. And he's not going to turn around and say, but, but obey the authorities that they're actually fine. That's not what he's up to there. He's saying something very different about um, religious authority yeah. that, you know, we can get into or not, but uh the fact that he gets quoted in moments like this, like I fully expect somebody to quote Romans 13 to say people protesting a black man's murder are wrong because they should be obeying the government. That is not at all uh, what our tradition teaches. And if you think it teaches that, I think you've misunderstood. Well, let's, let's save that. Let's leave that little teaser for folks to buy the book. Uh, I want we don't want to give the whole, the whole kid no. away, right? Uh, but yeah, that's the gist, right? That Paul yeah. speaking to religious authority, not, government authority. If you want to see the whole uh, rationale fleshed out by Eric's book, Paul the Progressive. So let's take a break and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with uh, Eric Smith. So Eric, some questions you can take as seriously or not as you'd like. If you're Pope for a day, what's your big, what's your big go-to? If I were Pope for a day, I think I would abdicate. I'm a uh, very disciple-y kind of guy, and I don't, I'm already suspicious of clergy and clerical power, so uh, I'm not sure we need a lot of hierarchy. All right. See, Paul or uh, Eric speaking to our, our context is uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ clergy, very much uh, antithetical to hierarchy. <laughs> a little ambivalent about it all. That's great. Um, maybe I sh maybe the answer should this should be obvious, but I'll ask anyway. What Christian or historical Christian figure would you want to bring back to life? Oh, goodness. Um, I don't think it would be Paul. Okay. Actually, um, who would be an interesting person? 
How about uh, Thecla? I think Thecla would be a fantastic choice. Um, She's like so, one of the first uh, apostles or disciples. Remind me. Yeah. So there's a an apocryphal book called the Acts of Paul and Thecla okay. that um, describes Thecla as sort of a follower of Paul and then later sort of her own version of Paul uh, in sort of a, a Paul mode. Um, and she was... Um, Today we kind of know her in that well. She's one of the, from one of these non-canonical books, but in antiquity she held a lot of authority, and there were you know monasteries named after her, and a lot of people thought of her as sort of a forerunner of a bigger tradition of women's uh, roles, and that's something the tradition has kind of swept under the rug in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think it would be fascinating to have her back to explain all of this stuff to us. Yeah, cool. Um, I imagine you're familiar with Phyllis Tickle's work. Uh, there's I an am. evangelical guy, Brady Shear, who kind of talks in similar, broadly speaking, about this time being like one of these 500-year events. Yeah. So what do you think history will remember for our current time and place that we're in within the Christian, um, Christian context? Yeah. So first I'll say uh, I once lived in Johnson City, Tennessee, and I had a neighbor, uh, neighbors, John and Patty, and um, – we were shooting the breeze in the front yard one day and he said, um, Oh, my mother writes books. He found out I was in the religious religion business. And it's like, Oh, your mother and your, your last name is tickle. You don't, you're not related to that was his mom. So I used to live next to Phyllis tickles wow. son. Um, great, great folks. Um, so I think, uh, we are, I'm not so I'm not sure whether we're just reading a pattern into the 500 year thing or not, but it does seem to explain a lot. Right. Yeah. And um, I wonder a lot of times these days, whether we're living through not just a moment in the church, but a moment in society, a moment in our nation moment, you know, there's all sorts of moments it seems yeah. we're, we're facing. And um, I think people will look back at this time I don't know what they'll say about us, but I do know that they'll be very curious about how we conducted ourselves. Hmm. Here we are, you know, facing in the right now moment, like this yeah. very intense uh, backlash against police brutality right. and racism is sort of the bigger picture yep. that's been going on for 400 years and isn't going to end anytime soon. I don't think we're facing um, this pandemic, which has brought into question all kinds of things about inequality and income distribution. And, you know, sort of on the back burner now is the world is burning. We've got yeah. climate change coming. So we've got these huge, huge problems that we're encountering. And if we make it to the other side of these problems, I think it will be, um, it will be the kind of thing that people will ask about in the same way they ask about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. How did he make it through? He didn't make it through, but how did he conduct himself through this time, right? Yeah. Um, how how it's it's not unlike you know the careers of these really important folks from history who live through pivotal moments and i think we're living through them the question is how are we going to look on the other side and i do my best i don't always do very well but i do my best to try to be on the right side of these things and to try to be on the side of justice and to try to be on the side of compassion and i hope people of faith can do that too it's 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 a uh, challenge for the church right now but it's also, this is corny, an opportunity, right? To be who we say we are. Yep. It's, it's, you, you say you're about justice. You say you're about grace. You say you're about inclusion. Yep. Go do it. Now's your moment. This, it's not going to get better than this. Now's the chance. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, 
I guess you've kind of alluded to this here already. You know, if you could go forward then 500 years in the future, like what do you think will be, uh, what do you think will look like, Christianity will look like in that future? Well, um, if the trends continue, it'll look a lot less white. It'll look a lot less North American, a lot less mainline Protestant. Mm -hmm. And it'll look a lot more uh, like the global South. Yeah. It'll look a lot more Pentecostal, mm-hmm. um, which I think is all to the good. I don't always agree theologically, you know, with some of these places, but you can't deny that that's where the spirit really is moving yeah. these days. Right. And that's where a lot of the, the, the center of gravity for global Christianity is, is in communities that uh, have been on the underside of the structures that you and I enjoy, you know, the privilege that we enjoy. The, the other side of that is where most global Christians are these days. And that, you know, is hopeful to me that uh, maybe, you know, middle-aged white straight guys in Colorado need to um, recede into the background a little bit and hear other voices because we've, we've had enough to say for long enough. And so 500 years from now, I'm hoping that's what has happened. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, thanks, Eric. I appreciate your time and uh, enjoyed chatting with you. Tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. You can always find out more about me on the Isla School of Theology uh, page where you'll find, you know, all sorts of things about my books. And uh, I think you can email me there. Um, you respond pretty well. So I'll just- I, pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> no promises, but I do my best. Um, and uh, I'm always around. I'm very present on social media of all kinds. So uh, hit me up. And your book is available uh, pretty much everywhere, right? I think so. Yeah. Buy it from Chalice Press if you can, um, because that is better for the publisher and publishers need your help right now. They're in a tough spot. All right, Paul, the progressive. So Eric, thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed chatting with you and uh, peace be with you. And also with you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. But hey, before you go, Do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people. Thanks, and go in peace.